Welcome to the BJA Education Podcast. Welcome to the November 2017 edition of the BJA Education Podcast. My name's Cliff Shelton. One of the benefits of a career in medicine is the transferability of a doctor's skills to other settings. As a result of this, many doctors choose to gain experience in a country other than that in which they gained their primary medical qualification. Reasons for doing so may include expanding their experience or altruistic or humanitarian reasons. Working in a low-resource setting often offers a combination of both of these benefits. And this is acknowledged by the United Kingdom Royal College of Anaesthetists, which, through its Global Partnerships Programme, offers fellowships in Zambia, Namibia and Tanzania. However, with these benefits come associated challenges. This month, I went to speak to Papri Decker, consultant anaesthetist at Alderhe Children's Hospital in Liverpool, to discuss her paper on paediatric anaesthesia in the low-resource setting. So I'm sat in the anaesthetic department of Alderhe Children's Hospital, uh, where I'm joined by Dr Papri Decker, who's a consultant anaesthetist here. So thank you very much for joining us, Papri. Okay, that's great. Considering your kind of opening statement in your paper, which regards the report by the Lancet Commission, which states that there should be universal access to safe, affordable surgical and anaesthesia care where needed by 2030, can you start off by explaining how far away from that target we are now in 2017? Okay, so first of all, I think um, with the recognition by the Lancet Commission of this problem, I think that's a a big step forward to establishing the current problem globally, allowing us to identify standards to work towards. Um, I also think that organisations such as Lifebox and the Safer Anesthesia from Education courses, such as um, for obstetrics and paediatrics, have been very important in reinforcing the, the use of WHO checklists, promoting teamwork and providing much needed continuing medical education and also a support network for the local anaesthesia providers in low resource settings. Um, obviously individual projects and health partnerships help to further reinforce the um, above messages. Um, In terms of trying to put this problem into context, um, a recent cohort study by the Global Surgical Collaborative looked at a number of low-resource setting countries and found that the paediatric adjusted mortality after emergency abdominal surgery um, was as great as seven times that of high-income countries. Now, I was lucky enough to spend a bit of time out in Zambia post my anaesthetic training. I actually spent 14 months um, out there as part of the Zambia Anesthesia Development Project. And just to put into context um, some of the potential obstacles that a low-resource setting has to overcome... Um, to actually achieve the targets in providing universal access to safe, affordable surgical care. I'm just going to talk about um, that case. Yeah, please do. Um, So um, I was involved in um, being part of the anaesthesia team to provide um, uh, anaesthesia for operations for children at the University Teaching Hospital in Lusaka in Zambia. And on this particular day, um, we had an eight-year-old listed for a splenectomy. Um, she was malnourished and underweight and had also um, been cancelled twice due to lack of um, blood products being available. So on this particular day, she had a haemoglobin, a starting haemoglobin of 8 
um, and um, blood products were available. So uh, everything was set up in theatre, ready for us to start a case. Um, just to put again into context how we work in Zambia, we had three anaesthetic theatres um, doing paediatric surgery simultaneously, um, three, usually three anaesthesia providers, uh, one for each theatre, but one consultant overseeing all three theatres. So I was designated with one of the clinical officers on that occasion. Mm-hmm. Um, we were um, conducting a gas induction because IV access was difficult in this awake child. And um, as we were going off to sleep, um, there was a complete blackout in theatre. So all we had was um, some uh, lights from the anaesthetic machine, um, which was running on battery at the time, and we didn't know for how long that battery would last. And we had some torches via our iPhones. So we managed to establish IV access, kept the patient oxygenated and communicated with the management structure there, so it was sister who communicated with um, the engineers to find out when the backup generators would be starting. Um, at that point, we were told 30 minutes, so we decided to keep the child asleep, allow spontaneous ventilation until we could establish that the lights would be back on. Um, we did have a second plan just in case our anaesthetic machine um, decided to uh, run out of battery. So we had um, we had an ambu bag inside, uh, ready and also some IM ketamine and some IV ketamine to allow the patient to keep asleep and spontaneously breathing with the LMA. Um, after 30 minutes, um, we managed to get the um, lights to come back on, the generator decided to work, and um, we were able to proceed with theatre, so the patient was intubated and theatre proceeded as it was intended. So this was a case in a, a teaching hospital in a uh, low-resource setting, and I, I guess that this was relatively well-resourced compared to some of the other hospitals that you might find, for example, in Zambia. Absolutely. So one of the key things about working in a low resource setting is that actually there is a, a, a varied, um, a, a real big variation in the amount of resources that are available. When we talk about low resource settings, um, low resource setting is characterised by a country with a lack of funds to cover healthcare costs for the wider society in that country. Um, this leads to lack of funding for medicines, education, equipment and infrastructure. In terms of low income economies, um, they typically um, are characterised by a gross national income of less than $1,000, around about $1,000. For example, these are countries like the Democratic Republic of Congo, which only has a gross national income of $430. Now, the country that I was in was Zambia, and that um, is a lower middle income economy, and so had a gross national income of roughly about $1,300. So lower middle income economies tend to have um, gross national income of up to Mm. $4,000. Now, to put this into context... Um, when compared to high resource setting, somewhere like the United Kingdom has a gross national income of $42,390. So you can really see how um, low resource settings um, have a problem with providing funding for all these things that are needed to provide safe healthcare. You've outlined in your case study one of the challenges that you faced working in Zambia. Can you outline some of the challenges that anaesthetists or anaesthesia providers face in general 
uh, when they're working in low and middle income countries. Some of the challenges that anaesthetists may face in a low resource environment um, can be um, a variety of things. So um, they can usually be divided into patient factors, equipment factors, and factors to do with the infrastructure of the environment that you're working in. Um, Practicing anaesthesia in an environment with limited resources requires a flexible and adaptive approach. Mm. Um, and I'd fully advocate that. Um, you really do have to think on your feet. Um, in terms of some of the patient factors, um, patients may often be anemic, malnourished, small for age, they may have concurrent diseases, they may be um, may have HIV and be immunodeficient. They often present late and with advanced pathology. Um, and also there, um, there can be language barriers. So it's important to obviously speak to your local team and have um, an interpreter when, um, when needed. Mm. Um, other challenges that you might face are um, equipment factors. So there is often a limited availability of airway equipment, especially um, the smaller sizes of ET tubes and um, laryngeal masks. Um, as well as a limited availability of anaesthetic drugs. Um, in terms of monitoring, again, there is no standardisation between the monitoring or the anaesthetic machines or the anaesthetic equipment used. Mm. Um, and often very uh, little or no maintenance of these machines. So it's very important to um, be able to be familiar with the equipment that you're going to be using. Um, the most common agents used are halothane and ketamine. Um, Ketamine is um, quite important in um, uh, the low resource setting as it's um, a good analgesic, provides um, a safe um, way of anaesthetizing a patient while maintaining um, airway reflexes. Um, however, in 2015, uh, an attempt was made to um, put ketamine under international control. Um, however, the World Health Organization Drug Dependence Committee um, felt that ketamine abuse didn't pose a global health public threat and actually felt that it would be detrimental for low resource settings to not have access to this drug that um, obviously is very useful mm. for um, in inducing anaesthesia and maintaining anaesthesia and for post-op analgesia. So ketamine is safe for the time being? Yes. Further from that, um, the other sort of challenges that you come across are infrastructure factors. I think my case study sort of pointed out to some of the factors that um, can come into play. So first of all, um, many of the patients do not have local healthcare facilities, so maybe travelling quite far and wide to actually access their, the healthcare facility that they're coming to. Um, tie into that poor transport links, um, so poor roads and um, lack of vehicles. Um, while in hospital, there's often um, interrupted or lack of a water or electricity supply, mm. which can make um, providing safe anaesthesia and safe operating circumstances difficult. Um, also, lack of blood products and post-op care facilities along with the equipment that goes with that. Um, also, I would say um, lack of robust governance structures to allow prospective data collection yeah. so improvements can be made. So that's often something that's lacking something that's relatively cheap and easy to introduce. Um, and finally, education and training, and also retention of sort of workforce um, 
and continuing medical education for that workforce. Mm. Can you break down a little bit some of the strategies that can be employed to deal with these challenges as you've described them? So, um, the World Federation of Society of Anaesthetists and the, and the World Health Organisation have emphasised the bare minimum requirements for delivering a safe anaesthesia, while simultaneously aiming for high standards through improved education and local engagement. I think this really sums up um, how to cope with the sort of challenges that you may face. Um, with this in mind, um, I've broken up sort of coping with the challenges through um, by looking at pre-op assessment and planning, um, induction of anaesthesia, maintenance of anaesthesia and post-op care. Okay. So looking at pre-op assessment, obviously it's essential to take a history in any environment, but obviously with the cultural and language barriers, um, it's important to engage with local care providers um, to get the best possible history and the best possible communication with your patient before they come to theatre. Um, assessing whether your current facilities are appropriate for care um, is important. So again, communication with the local team. Can we actually do this surgery in the environment that we're in? Have we got everything that we need? If not, is it possible to transfer this patient to an area that is safer? Mm. Because that is often um, able to happen. Um, another one of the important things about paediatric anaesthesia is having a weight for your child. <laughs> So obtaining a paediatric weight is quite important. Now, often in some areas, we don't have a set of scales. So when you go out there, sometimes it's important to take a set of scales with you because mm. it's one of those basic requirements. Often children, um, age-based weight formulas are possible, but most of the um, age-based formulas that we are familiar with overestimate the weight of um, a child. Um, often the children in lower middle income countries are underweight. Yeah. Um, and we often don't know their age, so it makes it more difficult. Um, a way around this would be having a Braslow tape. Um, so it's quite a useful indicator and it's quite an accurate indicator of um, estimate of weight for a child. Um, moving on to um, how do we cope with inducing our patients. Now, I mentioned earlier that uh, IV, both IV and gas induction are possible. The mainstay of medications that we use for induction are gas induction, which is often halothane, um, uh, and or IM ketamine, or if we can establish IV access, um, IV ketamine. So as an intravenous, um, a total intravenous anaesthetic, so through a drip, mm. dripping in. Um, obviously, be familiar with the drugs that you're going to use. So halothane, um, for instance, um, it's very good for induction, but obviously um, there are limitations in the amount of equipment that we have. For instance, we don't usually have capnography. So being mindful that hypercarbia and halothane are a bad combination and can cause cardiac arrhythmias is always good to have in the back of your head. Um, ketamine is extremely good for the hypovolemic patient. Um, so it's something um, that would be used if you were worried particularly about hypovolemia in your patient. Um, in terms of talking a bit about maintenance, so anaesthetic machines available are very variable. Um, we actually often use anaesthetic machines very much like the ones that we use in the UK, mm. but 
um, in terms of um, whether uh, we've got the full monitoring and uh, regular maintenance um, is variable depending on where you work so a backup plan is often needed so making sure that you've got that ambi bag and you've got alternative um, modes of delivering an anaesthetic is extremely important and having those plans set as your a b and c is very important um, interoperative temperature monitoring particularly for paediatrics um, is something that can sometimes be problematic as we don't have any active warming devices. So for neonatal surgery, um, for instance, in some hospitals, they seem to prioritise um, air conditioning. So often the air conditioning would be full blast mm. and the theatre environment would be very cold, even though we're in a hot country. So it's very important to be mindful that the temperature of that baby doesn't get too low because often we don't have interop temperature measurement mm. um, methods. Um, IV fluids is another thing that we need to think about so often we do have crystalloids um, there's often hypotonic solutions so be cautious about what um, fluids you're being offered um, and also the usual um, way that we transfuse is whole blood products as opposed to packed red cells so be mindful as to um, how much blood you're giving a child um, in terms of the whole blood to packed cell ratio Finally, post-operatively, in terms of pain relief, there's often um, limited a limited number of nurses on the ward, if any, so it's very difficult to give post-op analgesia. Opioids are available um, to a varying degree, but ketamine is often used. Um, a good technique is to use a regional technique if possible, so cordal blocks in children or um, spinals in older children is a possibility if you have local anaesthetic available um, and it makes the post-op care of these patients uh, um, in terms of pain very much easier. Um, in terms of recovery obviously there are a limited amount of staff so often we're using the same monitoring equipment to recover our patients as we are using for the intra-op. Um, in terms of post-op high dependency, that's often a room with a nurse who knows that the patient is there as opposed to um, the full remit that we have in the UK. Um, intensive care can be limited and if they do exist, um, there's usually poor maintenance or failure of existing equipment is possible. So some of the things you described there, for instance, um, lack of capnography, inconsistent monitoring, poorly maintained machines, these are things that as a, an anaesthetist who's worked solely in a high income country, I would see as, as red lines that I wouldn't cross to start an anaesthetic. Given your experience of training in a high income country and then going to work in a low middle income country, how did you learn about where the line can be drawn I think um, it's a careful balance, actually. Um, I, when I first um, arrived in Zambia, I found that uh, very difficult to know where to draw the line in terms of patients who are purely elective versus patients who are scheduled versus patients who have been cancelled five times because they haven't got blood products. It's very important to have that... Um, in the back of your mind when sort of deciding whether to go ahead with an operation. I felt that my experience in Zambia really consolidated my clinical skills and I think in terms of um, the lack of capnography and um, sometimes the lack of an ECG, 
Um, I think it really made me concentrate on um, the actual patient rather than looking at kind of monitoring as such. So for instance, if there was no ECG, we'd often use a precordial stethoscope for the children so that we'd be able to actually hear a heartbeat mm. or hear whether an arrhythmia would be occurring. Often on the small babies, we didn't have ECG electrodes small enough. So it, it, we really did go back to basics and I felt that it was a balance between being confident in your own basic skills and having the monitoring. I think communication as a whole um, between the entire team was essential and I felt that that planning prior to a child being anaesthetised um, really helped provide the safer anaesthesia as opposed to having lots of equipment that we couldn't maintain. So you conclude your paper with a discussion of some of the personal and professional aspects of uh, working in low-resource settings. Can you provide any advice for people who might be considering doing this for themselves and give any reflections on your own experiences? Just to summarise, I think over the last 10 years, I think the UK government has actually produced a number of reports to acknowledge the work done in low-resource settings, um, as well as the advantages of um, global health partnerships to the country involved, as well as to the individual health workers that take part in them. Um, if, you're, if you are considering time out, I think it's important to do your research. So looking at the AAGBI, the Royal College and local global health partnerships um, to find out any projects that you might be interested in is a useful way to find out. Also, um, once you've decided where you want to go, have a timeline and a budget. If you are planning this while in training, um, it's essential to um, have advanced planning for it for your out-of-programme experience. Um, other things that I would say is once you've established what programme you're going out to do or which country you're going out to, to be in, I would say that um, Skype is a really good way of communicating with the people that are out there. And it gives you um, a better idea and an understanding of what to expect if you speak to someone out there or if you have the opportunity to speak to someone out there. Um, and finally, I think support networks, um, your own family and friends, but also people who've been involved in the project are really important. Um, I found that was something very important for me um, and it allows you to have a debrief about the things that you, you're involved in and also ask for advice. Um, especially I think I found that it was essentially my first consultant job. I essentially finished um, my training in the UK and um, went out there as a consultant to supervise the trainees and um, physician trainees um, and also the non-physician anaesthetic trainees out in Zambia. Um, my experience in Zambia was incredibly valuable and I've made some great friends from it um, in contact in the process. Um, the experience that I had of the human factors, resource limitation um, and essentially being one of the many advocates for the role um, and importance of anaesthesia within the hospital but also having the opportunity to speak to the Ministry of Health and speak to them about the um, development of anaesthesia in terms of a national health strategic plan also helped me develop my confidence and leadership skills, which is essential for my role working as a consultant in, in the NHS. 
Happy Decker, thank you very much. Thank you. So thanks to Patry for a fascinating discussion. Next month in the December 2017 edition of the BJA Education Podcast, Dr. Anjum Ahmed Nusrath will be talking about anaesthesia for head and neck cancer surgery. Please remember you can follow us on Twitter at BJA Journals and we welcome any feedback on these podcasts. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the BJA Education Podcast. Thank you.